3 is where we'll be today. Now, as we get into the message this morning, if I were to tell you that I've got some good news and I've got some bad news, how many of you guys would want the good news first? How many of you guys are good news first type people? Okay. And I I assume the rest of you guys are bad news first type people, right? All right, all you pessimists out there liking to get the bad news first, okay? Well, I got some good news and some bad news coming out of Genesis chapter 3 this morning. And uh, we're going to look at the good news first. That's the title of today's message as we dive into Genesis chapter 3. Before we get into this today, I want you to know that over the next eight weeks between now and Christmas, we're going to actually walk through uh, the entire Old Testament. Now don't get worried. I know that's a lot of material. We're just going to hit the high points. But we're going to take a little journey through the Old Testament in this series that I'm calling Finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't really think that you can understand the gospel. You cannot really understand what Jesus Christ has done for you and who he is and what he came to do apart from the Old Testament. Now, I know that we're New Testament believers and that we, uh, we believe what the New Testament teaches, and that's the foundation for our faith. But the foundation for the New Testament is the Old Testament. And so in order for you to understand New Testament Christianity, I believe you have to be able to go back to these Old Testament days. And we're going to find Jesus through these next eight weeks. I put at the bottom of your outline in the notes this morning where we're going to be headed. So you can kind of have some heads up over the next several weeks as we go through these, uh, these scriptures. But we're going to be looking at the Old Testament prophecies. What does the Old Testament have to say about the Messiah? This one who was promised to come all the way back here to Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. We're going to find this first promise of the coming Messiah. I'm going to start here in Genesis 3, verse 1. Now, we're, the message today will begin in verse 14. But let me start in verse 1 today, just to remind us of what's going on here in this chapter. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And this is where we'll begin our message today. In verse 14, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father God I pray that you would help us this morning. Help us to understand what we find here in Genesis chapter 3. Back at the very foundations of the world, there was a man and there was a woman. And they both willfully participated in that first act of sin. And Father God, you were righteous and just in your judgments. perfectly holy and even at the same time perfectly loving toward those who had broken your commands and even broken your heart and we find ourselves today lord god as their descendants thinking of our own sin and how we too have fallen short of the glory of god for which we were created this Lord, help us to see your grace in the midst of these things. The good news in the midst of the bad. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 3 is probably most often referred to as the worst bad news in all of the scriptures. When people think of Genesis chapter 3, many times they don't think that there's any good news in Genesis chapter 3 this is where all the bad news started they see this as the first of the bad news and also the worst of the bad news but I want you to see this morning in the midst of Genesis chapter 3 something that God does that if you were just to read through this as we did just a moment ago and not to take time to go a little bit deeper you might miss some of the most glorious portions of the book of Genesis hidden right in the midst of some of the worst news that mankind has ever received. What do I mean? First of all, here in Genesis chapter, chapter 3, we find grace in the midst of grief. We find grace in the midst of grief. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me there. There's these three characters that show up. You've got 
the woman and the man and the serpent. And these are the three characters here to whom God speaks. And he begins there with the serpent. The serpent was the first one to speak here in Genesis chapter 3, strange though it might be. And so he is the first one on whom God brings his judgments. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, and we see the results of God speaking to him. But we want, I want you to see this morning that in the midst of the great grief that comes into the world in Genesis chapter 3, as sin comes and brings with it death and destruction, we think of the northeast this morning of our own country, we see the destruction that's gone on there and the things that are happening in our own nation in these days, and we're reminded that every bit of this is a result of the sin that occurred in Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered into the world, it brought with it death and destruction, it brought with it the, the disillusion of relationships, it brought many many all the horrible things in the world came as a result of this one event but there was grace in the midst of grief you see first of all i want you to see that the snakes slithering here had a new significance and there have been some who picture this serpent having had feet or having uh, stood upright previously. I, I don't think that that's the point here that the Lord is making when he says, cursed are you and from now on you will eat dust all of your days and you will crawl on your belly. I don't believe that God was necessarily saying that before that the serpent had legs or that he was upright or some other kind of form of, of something was going on. I think the point was that his slithering on the ground would now have with it a new significance. That it would now represent the lowly place to which the serpent was cast as a result of him trying to exalt himself above God. You see, that was exactly the point of the serpent and the one who was speaking through the serpent, that old devil, that old snake that was speaking through the serpent on that day. His point was to exalt himself above Almighty God because that is exactly the devil's point at every piece of his plan to take over the supreme place that only God should have. And when God said, from now on, you will slither upon the ground, you will continue in that way, but it will have for you a new significance, as every day on which you slither upon the ground, you eat of the dirt of the ground, you are reminded of the lowly place to which you have been cast as a result of trying to usurp the glory of God and to lead God's people astray. The snake slithering had a new significance. But then in verse 15, we see something that if you, if you were just to glide through this chapter, you would miss it. And I don't want you to miss it this morning. We find in verse 15 something that uh, many have referred to as the proto-euangelion. That's a big old word, and I'm going to break it down for you. But the proto-euangelion is what they refer to as the first gospel. Proto, those first five letters there. Proto is where we get the uh, word prototype, which means the first type. If somebody makes an invention, they have a prototype, and it's the first, the first type of something. Proto meaning first. You, E-U there, is where we get the word eulogy, which means a good word. When you have a eulogy at a funeral, it means someone is speaking a good word about the one who's deceased. Proto, you, means first good. And then we see the word in there, angel. An angel is merely a messenger of God. An angel means a messenger, and so someone who brings a message the first good news, the proto-euangelion. Now you're going, why did you give me this huge word? Well, if you ever hear that word, I want you to know what it's referring to. It's referring to Genesis 3.15. 
Now look with me at Genesis 3.15. We're going to look at it again. And as you read this, you may go, how in the world is this the first good news? God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And you might stop there and go, well, that doesn't really sound like good news to me. It just sounds like fighting. It sounds like wars. It sounds like all the things that we see in our world today. It doesn't sound like good news to me. But there is great news here. Because this is the first instance of the very promise of the gospel. If you look at this verse here, he does speak of the fact that there would be enmity, there would be war between the offspring of this woman and the offspring of the serpent. Now he's not talking about snakes and people here. If that's all you see is snakes and people, that's bad enough. Uh, John Calvin Uh, Put it this way, he said, As often as the sight of a serpent inspires horror in us, the memory of our fall is renewed. I don't know about you, but I don't like snakes. There may be some snake lovers here in the house. Just know that's ungodly. You need to repent of that. It says it right here in Genesis chapter 3. My great-grandfather used to catch black snakes, and he would put them in his cellar. And I remember going to his home as a young child, and he would challenge me to go down in there, and he would keep their, they would keep their canned uh, beans and all that kind of stuff down in the cellar. And he would always challenge me to go in that cellar. I never once went in that cellar because I knew what that man did. He would catch those nasty old snakes, and he would put them down there to keep out the mice and the bugs and everything else. And that man loved those old black snakes. But he was wrong, I'm telling you. Right here on the authority of God's word, he was wrong. So... But Genesis 3.15 is not just talking about snakes and people. There's a deeper thing here that you could easily miss. When we walked through the book of 1 John over the last several months, we saw many times John referred to this very thing, that there are basically two families in the world. There are the children of God, and as he refers to those, these are those who have trusted Jesus Christ by faith, who are walking with God as a result of their salvation in Jesus Christ, the children of God, and then there are the children of the devil. And these are the two families in the world, and you are either in one or the other. There is no gray area. There is no spiritual orphanage in the world. We talk through these things in the series of 1 John. But this idea goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. These two families were inaugurated in Genesis 3.15. Prior to Genesis 3.15, there was only one family. But we see the division occurs in that very first generation between Cain and Abel. As the one who was following the path of the devil, Cain, kills his brother Abel. And then Seth comes on the scene and he takes that line, the children of God. And we see the division begin to occur. We see it again in Noah's day. When Noah's sons go on different paths, and we see there's one who follows the path of God, and the others follow the path of the devil. The same thing is being said here. But notice in Genesis 3.15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and her, and between your offspring and her offspring. If you go back to the Hebrew here, the word offspring is a singular noun. He doesn't say offsprings, he says offspring. Now some have taken that as a collective singular, saying that he, that's just a collective singular, meaning that it means the same thing as a plural, he just uses it in a collective way. But many scholars, and I would fall not as a scholar, but as one who follows this path of thinking, 
have looked at that and have said he was referring to one individual. There was a certain Hebrew scholar that did a study of all the uses of this word offspring that literally means seed. That he, that he did a study of all the uses of this word throughout the entire Old Testament. And what he discovered was this. Every time that that uses, word is used in the singular, it always refers to one person. It's never used as a collective singular. And so those who would say, well, this is just a collective singular are basically going against the whole pattern of the rest of the Old Testament. But what do I mean by all this? Why am I giving you all this detail? Because what I want you to see this morning is that the offspring that he is referring to in Genesis 3.15 is a very special offspring. He is a very particular seed. He is referring here to a very particular man who would come, and he says of him, he shall bruise your head, speaking to the serpent and the one who was standing behind the serpent, that old devil, and he and you shall bruise his heel. And we fast forward to the day of the cross, the day of Calvary. When the perfect Son of God took upon Himself the sins of all mankind. And on that day, what was happening? What the world saw as a great defeat of that, on that day. What the world saw as a great defeat was the greatest of victories. And that old devil who thought that he was winning on that day that he was crushing his opponent on that day, did not realize that it was his own head that was being crushed under those heels that were pierced on that cross. We look back to Genesis 3.15, and I want you to see the promise of your Messiah this morning, one who was promised to come into the world who would take care of that old devil who would crush him, as Romans 16.20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, we live in victory today because of the one who won the victory for us. We live as overcomers in the world today, not because we're especially smart or brilliant or wealthy or powerful. We are none of those things. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Because of the victory that he won at the cross. This victory that was promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. There we saw grace in the midst of grief. Secondly, this morning, we see promise in the midst of pain. Promise in the midst of pain. Verse 16. He turns. God does to speak to the woman. And he speaks to her of great pain. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now again, good news in the midst of the bad. And you look at that and you go, well, wait a minute, I don't see any good news in there. Painful childbirth. I've experienced that now three times, well, at least from beside the bed, okay? It's not a pretty picture, no matter what kind of medicines you get in the midst of it. Pain in the midst of childbearing. This was the result of sin coming into the world. And something else we'll talk about in just a moment. But there's a promise here that we could easily miss. And it's the promise 
of progeny, promise of descendants. The very fact that Eve was going to bring forth children meant there was hope for the world. Think about Adam and Eve standing there in that moment. They knew the promise of God. And when you eat of the fruit of this tree, you'll surely what? You will surely die. And the serpent said, well, you'll not surely die. And we often miss the fact that when the serpent was tempting Eve, the Bible says Adam wasn't off in the garden doing his work. It says, and her husband who was with her, he was standing right there. My understanding of that portion of scripture is this. Adam basically took a step back and watched what his wife was doing and basically used her as the guinea pig. Let's see what happens to her. And when he saw that she didn't die, then he too took of the fruit and ate it. The first example of a passive man who rather than following the will of Almighty God allowed his wife to step into harm's way in order to protect his own skin. Let's see what happens to her. And when she didn't die, he too took of the fruit. But then God steps on the scene and they surely thought in that moment, this is it. Now God is here and then we are trembling in fear here in this moment. Surely this is it. The, the day is done. There is no more hope for us. But right here in the midst of this dark day, God was bringing hope to his people saying, you will bring forth children with great pain. Yes, it will be. Not just in childbearing, but in childrearing. There will be great pain. And all of you as parents, you've known that pain. You know the pain of what it is to bring a child into the world and to bring a child up. Even one who's being brought up in the faith. You experience that pain of sinful natures warring against one another. But there was a promise in the midst of that pain. It was the promise of descendants that there would be life coming from Adam and Eve coming into the world that they would truly fulfill the promise and plan of God that they would fill the earth in spite of their sin and again that the promise there was one who would come out of that line who would crush the very head of the serpent that had led them astray in the first place not only the promise of descendants but also the promise of discontent now you think, oh, how is that a promise? He says there to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. He shall rule over you. The very beginning of marital problems here in Genesis chapter 3, as he was re-emphasizing the fact that the man was given headship over the wife in the marital relationship. This was not a result of the fall. This was how God intended it from the beginning. But now there would be a conflict between husband and wife. That which was a beautiful submission would now become a war. And they would war against one another and they would have issues and problems and conflicts. And if you've been married very long, you've experienced this. It's a result of the events of Genesis chapter 3. But there was a promise here that was made that we could easily miss. That in the midst of these conflicts, there would be a discontent with the world. This discontent bleeds over into the, the curse of, that Adam was to see played out on the ground here in just a moment but it's the curse of, of discontent in the world. But this discontent is also a promise for us. It's also good for us. It's a grace for us that we are not content in this world. If I find my contentment in this world, then why would I go running to God? 
If I can find all that I need in my marital relationship, then what need do I have for a relationship with my Savior? The very discontent that we experience in this life, in our work, in our relationships, in our inner being, in our thoughts, in our emotions, the very discontent in which we live is a constant reminder that we need a Savior to deliver us. Now Paul himself said, I've learned the secret of being content in all of my circumstances, but what was that secret? Jesus Christ. A relationship with Him, walking with Him. As Adam was given the privilege of walking with the Lord God in that garden, so we have the privilege of walking with the Lord God, His Holy Spirit indwelling us, bringing us the contentment that this world can never offer. It is a wonderful grace of God that we cannot find contentment in this world. No matter who gets elected on Tuesday, I can guarantee you this, we will not be content. That's the promises of Genesis chapter 3. And this discontent leads us to the very throne of grace and to our God who extends that grace to us. 1 Timothy chapter 2 reminds us, For Adam was formed first and Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing. I think that's the same promise as Genesis 3.16. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Finally this morning, and I have very little time, so we're going to make it real quick. We've seen grace in the midst of grief and promise in the midst of pain. Finally, we see life in the midst of death. Verses 17 through 19, we see life in the midst of death. We see first of all here... That the ground was cursed. Now notice very clearly in this chapter, there is not one time when God curses the man or the woman. God curses the serpent, there was no hope for him. And God curses the ground, but God never curses the man or the woman. Do not think that God has cursed you. There are many who have fallen to that wrong assumption that God has cursed mankind. But to be cursed by God means there is no hope for us. But the curse was not for us. The curse was on this world, which is passing away. And the curse was on that devil, which is surely passing away. He's already defeated this very day. The ground was cursed. And secondly, toil was dispersed. Now I say toil there, not work. That's very important for us. Some of us think, some of us live in such a day. In fact, I see many in our younger generations today acting as if work was the curse. That is not true. Adam was given work from the beginning to care for the garden. But work was, not, work was not the curse. It was toil. It was the frustration of work. It was the sweat of the brow and the pain in the muscles. It was the thing that happens when nothing seems to work right. It was Thursday here at this church. I'm just going to tell you, Neil Bland, would, if he was here in the room, he'd be shaking his head with me. Thursday was one of those days when I was reminded of Genesis chapter 3. Nothing was working right. Everything was against us. Nothing seemed to be coming together. It seemed like everything, we would take two steps forward and three steps back. But as soon as we'd get one project done, ten more would show up. And we, and we got to the end of the day, and you just breathe a sigh of relief going, I'm glad that's over. And then we get up the next day, and we do it all over again. And some of you live in the toil of a job 
that you despise and you're frustrated by the fact that it never seems to be over and there doesn't seem to be the fruit of your labor that you would desire there to be. There's that discontent in our work, that toil, that pain, and that suffering associated with work, and that is all the result of sin. You see, sin twisted everything in this world. Everything that was good and perfect in the creation of God from our marriages to, our, to the nature to everything in this world was twisted by sin, including our work. So the ground was cursed, the toil was dispersed, and that's not the worst. A little fun with the <laughs> rhyming this morning. That's not the worst because death came into the world. He said, you are dust and to dust you shall return. Every time you attend a funeral service, be reminded of these things. And be reminded of the fact that death was not God's original plan for mankind. That death came into the world as the result of sin. That we rebelled against a holy God. We could ask the question, what would have happened to Adam and Eve had they not sinned? But we already know the answer to that. They would have lived. Death would not have come into the world. Death came, the Bible says, as a result of sin. Now we can what if this all day long and we can throw our dispersions upon Adam and Eve and say, well, those idiots, can they just obey one little command? It's just one tree. You had all the rest of the trees and you had to eat of the one stupid tree. Why did you do it? I've come to believe this, folks. If you'd been Adam or if you'd been Eve, I truly believe every one of us, including myself, we would have done the exact same thing. Because there was residing in us a desire to disobey God the serpent laid that opportunity there but they wanted to point the finger at the serpent they should have been the pointing the finger at themselves we live in a society of victimhood Kent Hughes puts it this way and I'll, I'll close here he said victimhood has become the fantasy land refuge of everyone from criminals to presidents to theologians who imagine that the blame for their conduct can be placed on some other person or thing or group. Let us be reminded this morning that the reason for the curse, the reason for toil, the reason for marital conflict, the reason for death, and the reason for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ was our sin. We want to blame everyone else. We live in a society of blame. That everything that happens to me is because somebody else did something wrong. And it's time for us to understand the fact that until you come to the gospel saying, I'm the sinner. I'm the one who did wrong. You look to Adam and what did he say? God, that woman you put with me. Now he was pointing at the woman, but I believe he was also pointing at God saying, God, if you'd never given me that woman, I never would have sinned. So God, really, it's your fault. And then he goes to the woman, and the woman says, no, it's the serpent. The serpent deceived me. Nobody wanted to own up to their own actions. And folks, the gospel says that it's only when you own up to your own actions. It's only when you come before a gracious God and say, God, I've sinned, and I need the help of your son, Jesus Christ, to save me from my sin. It's only when you accept the blame that you can receive the grace. 
So let me leave you with a promise this morning. Galatians 3.16 says, And now the promises were made to Abraham. We don't have time to talk about those promises this morning, but they were many. The promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and offspring, just like Genesis 3.15. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And he is the one we find here in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord Jesus Christ, the same one who I believe walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Prior to Adam's disobedience. The same one through whom all things were created. Nothing was created apart from him. All things were made for him and through him. Without him nothing was made. That same one is promised here. And his promise is for you this morning. Jesus did not get his start in Bethlehem. He is the great I am who he has always been. He was and is and is to come. He is the eternal and living God. And it is only through faith in him that you can have eternal life. It is only when you accept the blame and don't follow in the footsteps of your great, 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 great grandfather Adam and your great, 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 great grandmother Eve who chose to shirk their responsibility to cast the blame upon someone else. It's only when you say, I'm the sinner and I need the Savior. In that moment, you have the promise of eternal life when you call upon Jesus Christ by faith and trust Him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. And whether you're 8 or 88 this morning, that promise remains for you as long as there is breath in your lungs, as long as your heart continues to beat, you can trust Jesus Christ. And I invite you to do that today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Would you remind us today of the bad news that we are sinners deserving of death? Would you remind us of Genesis chapter 3, the foundation for this belief that sin came into the world and brought with it death. And it is inescapable except for one thing. That in the midst of this bad news, there was good news. The best good news. The greatest good news that we could ever know. That while there is sin, there is also a Savior. And we pray, God, that you would help us to look to Him by faith this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.